I first want to say uh, thank you again to all those who helped with VBS this past week. Thank you again to our 320 volunteers who gave of their time and energy to make this week so amazing. And many thanks and blessings as well to Belva and Michelle and Sarah, the children's ministry staff, the VBS leadership team. Thank you uh, for your leadership, your organization, your creativity, your prayers. And can we show them our appreciation one more time? And to the 509 kids, uh, we were so blessed to have you with us on our campus. And uh, we will continue to pray for you as you take to heart God's word and and his truth that uh, we learned this past week. And what a privilege to have all of the the catchy songs and the memory verses and the, the Bible points and the skits to help plant God's word in our hearts. And that got me thinking, what did the church do before Vacation Bible School? (laughs) How was the gospel and God's word communicated to our young people and to our adults? Well, we've been in this series on the book of Acts, and we've been walking through how the good news of Christ was first passed along and the early church. And recently we've been following the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and his friends as they have been spreading the gospel message. Paul didn't have a VBS with songs and skits. He might have been an excellent arts and crafts leader since he was a tent maker by trade. But his context for communicating the gospel was a little different than what we are used to today, as we will see in our passage in Acts chapter 17. Paul began his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 15, and he's in this region called Macedonia. And in chapter 16, as we looked at last week, Paul visited Philippi, the first European city in which the gospel is preached. And Paul was there in Philippi only briefly, but these Philippian believers became such a source of joy and encouragement to Paul, as we read about in the book of Philippians. And then Paul continues from Philippi and heads southwest on this road called the Ignatian Road. It was a stretch of road about 100 miles from Philippi to the first major city that we see here In chapter 17, Thessalonica, the second largest city in Greece. And Paul probably didn't make very long uh, pit stops in these smaller cities that we see mentioned here in verse 1 of Acts 17, Amphipolis and Apollonia. Because probably there wasn't much there. You know, there wasn't a Starbucks or a Bucky's. Uh, And there probably wasn't a synagogue either, which is where the Jews gathered to worship and where Paul traditionally liked to preach when he first entered a city. So far in this series on Acts, 
We've seen in chapters 1 through 7 where the gospel goes out among the Jews. Chapter 8 and following is the gospel among the Gentiles and the Samaritans who were half Jew and half Gentile. And then chapter 10, the gospel is taken to the Gentiles, starting with Cornelius, the centurion. And then Paul expands the reach of the gospel from there to all the Gentile world, to the ends of the earth. And that's the archway of Acts 1.8, the gospel first reaching Jerusalem, and then outward from there to the region of Judea and beyond to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Paul was sent by God to preach the gospel to the Gentiles or non-Jews. But he first liked to minister in the Jewish synagogues when he came to a new place, like we see here in Thessalonica. We see this in verse 2. According to Paul's custom, he went and preached in the synagogue for three Sabbaths, so at least three weeks. And what did his ministry entail? We see four verbs there used in verses 2 and 3 to describe Paul's ministry in the synagogue. One, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Two, he explained. Three, he gave evidence. And four, he proclaimed. And what was he proclaiming? Only the greatest message ever delivered. The greatest news ever told. Verse 3, that Jesus suffered and died on the cross and rose from the dead. That's the gospel and the centerpiece of Paul's message, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 3 says, he had to suffer. Jesus had to suffer. That word had is, is interesting. Could it not have been enough for Jesus just to die for us from old age or natural causes? Wouldn't that kind of death be sufficient enough to pay the penalty that we owe to God because of our sin? No, it says in Hebrews 9.22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So Jesus had to suffer. He had to absorb the wrath of God for our sake so that we might then be restored and brought near to God once again. When a visiting teacher or a rabbi would, would enter the synagogue, uh, he would teach from the Old Testament law and scriptures, and that's what Paul is doing here. He takes the Old Testament scriptures that refer to this long-awaited Messiah or Christ, and he says, all of these messianic re references are pointing to and were fulfilled in the person of Jesus. It all points to him. The second part of verse 3 says, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. 
The name Christ is not Jesus' last name. The name Christ means anointed one, the Messiah. And Paul is telling these Thessalonian Jews that the fulfillment of the messianic promise has already taken place in the person of Jesus. So Paul takes at least three Sabbath days or three weeks to build this case for Christ from the scriptures to the Jewish people. He most likely spent more than three weeks there in Thessalonica because after preaching in the synagogue, he probably spent a good amount of time ministering to the Gentiles because we read in verse 4 that a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of prominent women in the Greek community came to Christ. But the Jews here in Thessalonica aren't as responsive to Paul's preaching because we read in verse 4 that only some were persuaded. And actually, all of this attention directed at Paul brought about some envy from the Jewish leaders. Verse 5, but the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. Wow, that escalated quickly. These Jewish leaders, they were seeing people being directed away from the synagogue and into the Christian community. And jealousy took root in their hearts. And they go out into the marketplace and they round up a a gang of of ruffians and, and rebel rousers and say, guys, do what you do best. And they form a mob and they start this, this riot of sorts. And they try to distract people away from the ministry of the gospel. And then the mob goes to where Paul and Silas are staying at the house of a man named Jason. But Paul and Silas aren't there. It seems that Paul had just enough time to sneak out the back door uh, before these unpleasant people show up. And since the mob can't find Paul, they instead drag out the homeowner, Jason. Poor Jason. You know, he was just trying to be hospitable and, and play host to, to Paul. Uh, but suddenly he is pulled out into the streets by this unruly gang, and he is taken before the city authorities to stand in as Paul's representative. And these Jewish leaders bring three charges against Paul and Jason. And the three charges are, number one, that Paul and Silas and the others were troublemakers. The end of verse 6. These men who have upset the world have come here also. That's a little exaggeration to say that Paul and his buddies have upset the whole world. But there's some partial truth there. Word about Paul had been spreading throughout the inhabited earth. But it wasn't necessarily Paul who was upsetting the world. Paul was just being a faithful, obedient messenger. It was the message. It was the good news of Jesus. The undisputable eyewitness testimony of his 
death, burial, and resurrection. This message is what turned the known world upside down. Charge number two was that Jason had welcomed Paul and Silas, verse 7, and is therefore associated with these troublemakers. Little is known about Jason other than this role in this scene. And I think it's safe to say that this was probably the last time Jason would volunteer to host Paul. Some think that Jason may have been a a relative of Paul, you know, maybe some distant third cousin, or or maybe they were co-workers in the tent-making business. But suddenly Jason is thrust into the Acts narrative and joins the list of those in the book of Acts who are persecuted for the sake of Christ. And then charge number three, the Jewish leaders say that they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. This was a more serious charge of of sedition or being a traitor to Caesar and saying that there is another king. This was a similar charge brought against Jesus, that he defied Caesar by placing himself as king. But Jesus himself said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. Yes, Jesus is alive and he is our risen king in heaven where he reigns. But one day soon he is coming back to set up his kingdom here on earth. And upon hearing these charges, the crowd and the city officials, they get all stirred up, verse 8, and they make Jason and the others post bond. And then they let them go, verse 9. This bond or bail payment was probably a pledge to guarantee that Paul and Silas would leave town and never return. And if they did come back and, and cause more trouble, Jason would lose the money on that bond payment. This might explain 1 Thessalonians 2.18 when Paul said that he was prohibited from returning to the Thessalonians. So these Thessalonian believers send Paul and Silas away at night to Berea, verse 10, which was about 45 miles west of Thessalonica, so about a three-day journey on foot. And when they arrive in Berea, their routine is, is very similar as to when they arrived in Thessalonica. They first begin to preach in the synagogue. But here in verse 11, we begin to see the contrast between the Thessalonians and the Bereans. It says the Berean Jews were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians. That word noble-minded is translated elsewhere as of more noble character or open-minded. These Bereans were more open and receptive to the gospel. How do we know that? The second part of verse 11. For they received the word with great eagerness. They willingly and with great excitement absorbed what Paul was teaching. 
And that's very different from the Thessalonians who became jealous of Paul. We saw this same Berean-like excitement and eagerness from our young people this past week at VBS as they heard and they responded to God's word. But it's not just enough to be excited and eager. We must also do what we see next from these Berean believers in the second part of verse 11. It says they examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They looked at the word daily to see if what Paul is saying was true. And we want the same for you here at Wayside, here at this campus. And as we launch the new campus later this summer in Stone Oak, our desire for you is to have that same hunger and thirst for God and his word. Not just to be content with hearing a sermon or a podcast once a week. Or for the young person to take in the word once a year at VBS or even once a week in the kid zone. Or for the students in the Echo student ministry. But to get in the scriptures daily. And personally, and to find out for yourselves just how the inspired word of God is profitable in your lives for teaching, rebuking, training, and correcting in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16. For us to be rooted in the word, as our vision statement emphasizes. And to be rooted is not just to sit under the preaching of God's word on Sunday mornings, but to read it at home daily, to meditate on it, to memorize it, to study it, to saturate our lives with it, to apply it to every situation, to see every conversation, every decision through the lens of God's word. That's why one of our ABFs, Our adult Bible fellowships here at Wayside is named Berean because these Bereans expressed a devotion to the study of the Bible. They didn't just blindly take in everything that Paul was preaching. No, they appropriately questioned his teaching and searched the scriptures for themselves. And what was the result? What was the result of this personal Devotion, verse 12. Therefore, many of them believed. There were many conversions of faith from both the Jews and the Gentiles compared to just some Jewish conversions in Thessalonica. The gospel was being received by men and women, Jew and Greek. The power of the gospel and the power of the spirit of God was cutting across all lines of social position and status and culture. Paul was accused of upsetting the whole world. And when we come to Christ, our identity should also be totally turned upside down as well. 
Because we are now new creations in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, the old things passed away, the new things have come. When we come to Jesus by faith, the Spirit of God within us instills in our hearts new inclinations, new desires, new motivations. I heard a story about Augustine. Uh, one of the early church fathers and one of the great Christian theologians uh, from the 4th century. And before he gave his life to the Lord, Augustine had developed a not-so-great reputation because of his wild lifestyle. And one day, after coming to faith in Christ, he crossed paths with one of his old girlfriends as, as Augustine was walking down the street. And the woman had stopped to talk with Augustine, and, and Augustine was nice enough and, and cordial, but then he quickly walked away. And the woman thought, wow, he was acting different. Maybe he didn't recognize me, but, but he should. I mean, after all, we had, we had quite a past together. And so she cried after him, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine turned around and very bluntly said, I know but it is not I. And that's because when we come to Christ, we are changed. We are transformed by the Spirit of God. And no longer are we conformed to this world, but we are transformed. No longer are we in bondage to our former self and our former ways, but we are now in bondage to Christ. There was this great spiritual harvest taking place here in Berea. But this ideal situation didn't last because when those Jewish believers back in Thessalonica hear that Paul is now preaching in Berea, they get the mob together once again and say, let's road trip it down to Berea. Let's get down there. And when they get there, they begin to incite the crowd all over again in opposition to Paul. And get the crowd worked up against these believers. And their main attack this time is centered primarily just on Paul. And Paul is once again forced to leave. But Timothy and Silas remain behind to help the Christian church in Berea. And Paul departs for Athens. A very famous visit to Athens that we will be looking at next Sunday. And Paul sends a message back to Silas and Timothy to join Paul in Athens as soon as possible. In Athens, next week, we're going to see uh, Paul once again make his customary visit to the synagogue to preach. But then Paul has a very unique opportunity as he delivers his famous sermon on Mars Hill. So we hope you can come back next Sunday to hear about that. Let me mention a few points of application for us today. Number one, we are called to simply and faithfully proclaim the word of God. We are not responsible for the results. I don't know of anyone who has ever been argued into God's kingdom. We can proclaim the word and plant the seeds of the gospel, and then we have to trust in the Holy Spirit to cultivate the soil 
and bring forth spiritual fruit in a person's heart. In verse 2, we saw Paul reasoning and explaining and giving evidence of the gospel, probably evidence from his own miraculous testimony as Paul encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus where his life was forever changed. And as believers, we need to incorporate all of these same methods as well when we share the good news of Jesus to our neighbor. We first show them that we love them, we care for them, and then we can explain the gospel. We can reason with them from the scriptures, from a place of grace and truth. We give personal experience and testimony from God's transformative work in our own life. We show and prove that the Messiah had to suffer. He had to suffer. He had to die on the cross. And he was buried. But then he rose from the dead and he now lives and reigns in heaven. And we can share all of this in a winsome, loving way. As the founder of Young Life, Jim Rayburn, said, it's a sin to bore a person with the gospel. The gospel and the supremacy of Christ should be the most exciting and compelling news that we could ever pass on to another person. So we must faithfully proclaim it. Number two, in order to faithfully proclaim it, proclaim and preach the word of God, we must immerse ourselves daily in God's word. We must hunger for God's truth like we saw with these Berean believers. I'm not going to proclaim that which is not on the forefront of my heart. If what dominates and fills my mind are the things of this world, then that is what I will more readily readily proclaim and profess and discuss with other people. But if what fills my mind are the things of this world and God's word and, and sermons that I'm hearing or edifying books that I'm reading, things that I'm praying about, then those truths will be what the Lord causes to overflow out of my heart and out of my mouth when I'm talking with other people. So I need to constantly ask God to renew my mind, to purify it, and to give me that insatiable hunger for the things of God and his word. But there will always be some, like the Thessalonian Jewish leaders who out of envy and jealousy and rebellion will fight and scratch and and claw against the things of God, the things of the gospel. But Christ will always prevail. I read recently about a minister who saw the grave of a man who had died centuries before. The man who had passed away was an unbeliever and he had defied all things Christianity 
and to show his defiance against eternal things and the possibility of his body being resurrected someday, he had this huge stone slab placed on top of his grave. And the man had inscribed on the slab of stone, I do not want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it. Then why go to all this effort? Uh, Anyway, (laughs) when he was buried, an acorn must have fallen into the grave because many years later, the acorn had sprouted and roots had grown up through the soil. And after some time, those powerful roots had split that slab of stone. That one seed had grown into this towering oak tree over this man's grave. And the minister looked at that and said, if this acorn, which has the power of finite biological life in it, can split a slab of stone with this kind of magnitude, then what can just a mustard seed of God's resurrection power do in a person's life to bring them to faith in Jesus? Some of you may have tried to place seemingly immovable slabs of stone over your hearts, slabs of bitterness and insecurities and fears and doubts. You haven't been able to trust God with all your life. Perhaps you've, you've become hardened against spiritual things because of an unfortunate past experience. But God's resurrection power can break through any heart, even the hardest of hearts. So stop fighting against him. He wants the very best for you. Stop running from him. Entrust your life to him and you will never regret it. On Father's Day, we can rest assured knowing that we serve a heavenly father who is a good, good father and he will never let us down. He will never disappoint us. He is for you. So pray. Pray and place your faith In Jesus Christ alone, ask him to give you a heart that hungers for him and his word. Back in January, Pastor Roger preached a message titled, A Tale of Two Cities. And he was contrasting two groups of people. One at the end of Acts 4 and then one at the beginning of Acts chapter 5. The group in chapter 4 was filled with the Holy Spirit. And speaking the word of God with boldness and and sharing all property and with great power, giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But in contrast, we see this group in Acts 5, we see this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who sell a piece of property for the church, but then keep back a portion of the profits for themselves. And things didn't work out so well for them. It was a tale of two different people, two different hearts. We see another tale of two cities here in Acts 17. In Thessalonica, 
Some believed, but there are others whose jealousy turned into a defiance against the gospel. But in Berea, we see not only many people coming to faith, but they deliberately search the scriptures daily for themselves. They had a hunger for God's word. So two different responses. And that made me think about the the classic book by Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. And from the opening line of the book, we see two cities being contrasted. London, where it was the best of times, and Paris, where it was the worst of times, as Paris was on the brink of the French Revolution. I had to read this book at, at Churchill High School. And it was one of the finest written cliff notes, I mean novels, that we had to read. And after reading it, we had to come up with some kind of project or, or book report. So my twin brother Sam and I decided to make a short movie depicting a scene from this book. And I won't go into the whole plot of the novel um, because I don't remember it. Um, But basically, the scene that we acted out was the climactic scene involving the main character, Charles Darnay, who is sent to prison for the crimes of his father and is to be executed by the guillotine. But before Charles can be executed, a man named Sidney Carton comes to his rescue. And after a few tricks and disguises, Sidney takes Charles's place in prison. And Charles walks away free and goes back to England with his family. But Sidney dies in Charles's place on the guillotine. So my brother and I film uh, this prison scene in our garage, which was dungeon-like to begin with. And my twin Sam is sitting there as Charles Darnay on the prison bench, which was actually our bench press. And he's facing death. But I'm able, as Sidney, to visit Charles's cell. And we switch glasses and, and blazer jackets, and I take his place. And my brother walks out, a free man. It didn't win any acting awards. Hopefully it got us an A- minus on the project. Uh, But that is what Jesus did for us. Jesus took our place when he died on the cross for our sins. But he didn't have to resort to trickery or, or deceit to pull it off. No, he willingly went to the cross out of obedience to the Father's will. And he died for us. The character in the book was sent to die for the crimes of his father. But God the Father sent his son to die, not because of the sins of the son, because the, sin was per- the son was perfect and sinless and spotless. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin and was executed for our crime and our sin so that we might then be set free from the bondage of sin and death that imprisoned us. You know, sometimes in this life, it feels like we are crawling on our hands and knees in a dark cave like the VBS cave 
up here. And all we can sense is darkness and despair. And, and we aren't sure which way to turn. We aren't sure which way is up. But as our kids learned this past week, we must keep our eyes on Christ. He is our true north. He is our light of the world. And Romans 10.9 says that all we have to do is confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and then we will be saved. And that's what happened with these Bereans. By the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of Paul's teaching and the power of the word of God, something clicked. The light turned on and the truth of the gospel became real in a new and powerful way. Perhaps there's some here sitting this morning and you have never fully grasped just how much Christ did for you. It's not about what we try to do to earn our salvation, but what Christ has already done for us on the cross by dying in our place so that we might have that gift of eternal life in him if we simply place our faith in Jesus. It's that simple. Trust in Christ alone. Like me, you may have spent some of your life trying to fill a void in your heart with the things of this world. But the only thing that can truly satisfy that emptiness is Christ. This Jesus is the Christ. He is our Savior. He is our Lord, the light of the world, and worthy of all of our trust and all of our worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us more of you, more of your presence, more of your Son. Give us a hunger for the things of you and your word as we saw today with these Berean believers. And I think of those final words of Sidney in the book, A Tale of Two Cities, as he stepped in and took Charles's place. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I've ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. When we trust in Christ, we have that assurance of salvation in heaven. A place with you, Father, a place of far, far better rest and worship and glory. And I pray, Lord, if there is anyone here who has not yet placed their faith in Christ alone, that today would be the day that they would stop going their own way and yield to you and step into the light of your presence. Enlighten their hearts today with this truth, that Jesus is the Christ. And Father, we thank you again for a great week at VBS and for all that you did to point our young people to you. I thank you for the reminders this week that it's Jesus that gives us hope. He gives us courage. He gives us direction. He gives us love. And he gives us power. Help us to follow him. 
And I thank you, Lord, for our fathers this morning. Bless them. I thank you for my own father who's, who's here this morning. Lord, uh, I thank you for the way that he modeled to me virtue and kindness. And I pray that each father here, by your strength, would strive to be more like you, our heavenly father, who loves us with an unconditional and everlasting love. And Lord, I pray that you would bring our dads back here tomorrow night at 7 p.m., for the message from Jeff Kemp to be further encouraged and challenged in this important calling as fathers. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are prayer partners down here that would love to speak with you and love to pray with you. Have a great Father's Day.